When Amy and I moved our family to Lynchburg from Fort Worth, Texas in 2011, we were on a mission. We were on a mission for good food. And I don't mean good restaurants, which were in great supply in Fort Worth and are in short supply in Lynchburg, but good food, healthy food, homegrown food for our growing young family. All the way in Texas, we had heard about some fellow named Joel Salatin that lived in the Shenandoah Valley that was bringing back homesteading. And we had read his books, and I had even watched him kill chickens on YouTube. And we even built a raised bed garden in our suburban backyard in Arlington, Texas, filled with tomatoes, lettuce, corn, and strawberries, all the things that the children enjoyed eating. We weren't going to try to grow something that they were just going to turn their nose up at. So we got them to make the list of what we were going to grow. Sadly, we were fighting against the elements in what would be a record heat wave with temperatures hitting 100 degrees by mid-May and not retreating below that triple-digit figure for another four months. Not deterred from our mission for homegrown food, we made plans for a new garden in our new town. But then there were the deer, who stu stood ready to enjoy the bounty of our gardens. We planned and we, we drew pictures and shopped and determined that it would cost $1,500 to build a fence of wood and wire to keep them out of the garden. How many groceries does $1,500 buy? So we gave up on the growing of produce and we focused on egg-laying chickens. A coop, two dozen chickens or chicks, fencing, food. I don't even know how much that costs. All I got back was a couple dozen eggs. My farming dream died the night that Amy told me to go out and kill the possum that was in the hen house with a shovel. Raising food to feed the family was a romantic dream for us, but it ended in failure because it was simply not convenient. If food hung from trees, the Morses might have made time to pick it. But to fight the elements and predators to stave off imminent starvation was never part of our consideration. We were never like the Jodes in Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, who lived every moment to find the next bite to eat. If we here, among ourselves here, took a moment to consider it, how many of us would survive if it depended upon our ability to conjure food up from the earth? And what about all the other domestic arts like salting meat and canning and pickling produce so that you could have something to eat in the middle of the winter when there is no food to eat? You see, there's no DoorDash for that. And now that I've got you in an agricultural state of mind, I ask you to consider Jesus' parable that we have heard just as our gospel lesson today. It's one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, and yet to us in the 21st century, it is all but a mystery. A sower went out to sow his seed. This is, to us postmoderns, a task that's almost as, as impossible as if Jesus had said, an astronaut got in his rocket to go to the moon. What type of seed did he sow? 
In what season did he sow? With what preparation did he sow? Jesus' audience would have known the answer to all these questions as naturally as they knew themselves. It was the daily struggle of hope against hope to provide enough for the family to avoid starvation. And it was wrapped up in a greater hope. It was their hope in Yahweh that he would preserve them, would bless them, and would guard them against all their enemies and oppressors. So Luke tells us that Jesus and his disciples were passing through the entire country, proclaiming that the kingdom of God had finally arrived. And when we hear the language of the kingdom of God in the scriptures, we assume something like heaven, a far-off spiritual dimension complete with wings and harps. But that isn't what the Jews thought of, and certainly not what Luke meant when he wrote that Jesus and his disciples were proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God in Luke and the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. Instead, the Jews awaited the return of Yahweh after he had departed from the temple as the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. and the holy place within it, as it is recorded in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. The Jews had endured 70 years in exile and had returned to their land, but the Lord himself had not returned. The Jews of Jesus' day still looked with anticipation for the final reconciliation promised by all of the prophets. One of the greatest examples of this promised return is found in the concluding chapters of Isaiah's prophecy. Confirming his love for his sinful people, Yahweh declares, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed for the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all of the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see here, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, Yahweh is the sower. By his word, he had spoken worlds into existence. And by his word, he would bring his people, repentant of their sins, would bring them back home from exile. Yahweh's word is creative. It is fruitful. It is bringing fruitful trees to fill the wasteland where the thorns and thistles had been the only vegetation. And we shouldn't miss the correspondence between Isaiah's pledge and the Lord's punishment of our first parents in Genesis. Because of their rebellion, God cursed the ground where once had been a garden and by implication of all of the earth stood ready to deliver its promise and produce to Adam and Eve without the least bit of cultivation. Now God's curse makes it so that the ground would re resist Adam's advances. Instead of fruit and grain, the ground would produce thorns and thistles. The land that had once been compliant and bountiful would now become a stranger to its human occupants. 
But now, see how Yahweh speaks comforting words to his people in his prophecy in Isaiah. Seed for sowing and bread for eating. The trees themselves will dance and sing. Adam's thorns and thistles will give way to the shady cypress and myrtle when the Lord forgave his people for their sins. The seed sowing, the speaking of God's word, the good news of the kingdom coming into their midst. It would inaugurate the kingdom of God with the divine presence returned to his people. What does Jesus mean by beginning his preaching ministry with a parable about sowers and seeds, soil and harvest time? Simply this, that the long-awaited redemption of Israel had finally come. Yahweh had returned to his people in the person and work of Jesus. Not only is he the sower, that is Yahweh himself, but Jesus is himself the seed, the word of God, cast into the world, God incarnate, messenger and message. He is the true icon of the eternal father. He is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. The promised kingdom had come in the person of Jesus. He and his disciples went throughout the land of Israel proclaiming that Yahweh had indeed kept his promise, had indeed returned in person. But who would receive this message? Some of his audience were like soil that had been trodden on and baked hard by the Judean sun until it was like concrete. These folk no longer cared for God and his promises. Jesus says that the devil comes along and carries away the saving seed. That is to say that they had delivered themselves into the hands of the dark powers of this world, characterized by pride, hatred, and self-destruction. Some others of his hearers were like rocky soil, in that there was dirt to grow, yes, but obstacles that stood in the way of real flourishing. Jesus says that there are people who love the idea of Jesus, but cannot stand the ridicule that the world pours out upon those who truly follow him. Finally, Jesus said that there are people who are like ground that is fertile, but has already been taken over by other plants, weeds and thorns and thistles. The good news of Jesus sounded appealing from the outset, but was quickly drowned out by the competing demands of other kingdoms. In the last of the Chronicles of Narnia series, the book called The Last Battle, Lucy wonders why her older sister has not appeared with the rest of the heroes to save Narnia on her day of peril. Aslan tells Lucy, Aslan tells Lucy that Susan has become too busy with tea parties and balls to think about Narnia anymore. Jesus tells his disciples, where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus began his ministry with a parable about a sower casting seed into a variety of soils, he was telling a tale that his audience would have understood somewhat, but it was a veiled message. Veiled message that he was the one who was finally bringing the Jews the redemption that they had expected. But many of them would refuse to hear and refuse to follow. But there would be some who would hear and would follow him and would bring forth a bumper crop of harvest even in the midst of terrible persecution. 
The Acts of the Apostles and the early church fathers tell us how the early church suffered as they remained faithful to Jesus and as he remained faithful to them. And it is for this reason that the church from the earliest days placed this gospel lesson and Paul's account of his own sufferings in the pre-Lenten Jessima season. It is as if to say, you too should prepare for the long journey of the cross through Lent that will end in the glory of Easter. And to prepare for this journey, you should consider the cost of what it is to follow Jesus. And of course, this is a message that we need to hear every day, all of our lives long, but it is especially clear for us as we prepare for our Lenten devotions with extra measures of prayer and fasting. Perhaps even we, suburban Americans, can understand Jesus' agricultural parables after all. Jesus has a garden, and he is the gardener. All saints is a little corner of that garden. My weekend warrior men of the parish know what pride you take when your lawn looks thick and green with no bald spots and no weeds to spoil that perfect uniformity that stretches out from your front door to the road there. You weekend warriors like me looking for that perfect lawn. A perfect lawn is a sight to behold. To have a perfect lawn costs a great deal of money for a good lawnmower with a sharp blade and chemicals to feed the grass and kill the weeds. It's very expensive. It's very costly. You pay a lot for a crop that you'll never eat. <laughs> Jesus himself knows what it means to pay a great deal for a harvest. And how do you feel when the moles get in the turf of your beautiful front lawn, or your neighbor's dog uses your yard instead of his own. Or perhaps you have neighbors that help themselves to your strawberries that you're growing in the front beds. How do you feel about that? Jesus understands because he is a gardener, and the church is his garden. Our highest obligation here at All Saints must be the care and feeding of the plants that grow here, never to trample, trample them or tear them up. All Saints is like a nursery where little plants become great towering trees that bear fruit every day for a blessing to the church and the world. And like plants, the garden at All Saints grows when rain falls upon it and rich nutrients are placed in the soil a word of forgiveness and of encouragement is like fresh rain to your Christian brothers and sisters. Reading the Bible and attending the Holy Communion is rich food to sustain the disciple of Christ along his way. Caring for the sick, feeding the hungry, seeking peace among all men. This is the fruit that the garden should bear. Amen. Amen.